You're listening to Gibraltar Stories, a podcast in which I hope to share some fascinating stories connected to Gibraltar. My name's Lindsay Weston. I've been living here in Gibraltar for almost 10 years, and during that time I've discovered more and more about this tiny and very special place. Its history, its people, famous visitors, and its role in important events on the world stage. For a steep limestone cliff with an area of just 6.8 square kilometres jutting out into the Strait of Gibraltar, it has a lot of stories to tell. This skull, Darwin held it in his hands and he, he talked about the, the magnificent Gibraltar skull. And so it was almost complete. So it was almost giving people an idea of what these people were like and the, how different they were from us. The, the strategic position always matters in terms of how um, others view Gibraltar and the interest that can be gained out of control of, of, of the place. I say it's a microclimate within a microclimate. A microclimate is when you get small changes in a short space. And, you know, Gibraltar itself, we know, is very different from, like, Spain. It never gets quite as hot as nearby Spain or Morocco, never gets quite as cold in the winter. There's only been one time that there's ever been an air frost that's been recorded. I arrived here and I looked at uh, Marina Bay and I went, ah, now that's where my uh, the, the, mur- the murderous y- uh, yacht is moored and that's where that so-and-so, that flat over in Neptune House, um, that's exactly where, and that's the runway and that's where the chase takes place. So it's wonderful. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the first episode of Gibraltar Stories. I'm thrilled that I'm able to share this podcast with you. Months ago, when I was planning this whole project, there was always only one way for me to begin this, and that was with Gibraltar's Neanderthal history. Back in 2016, Gibraltar was awarded UNESCO World Heritage status because of the evidence left here by the Neanderthals. The first ever Neanderthal skull discovered was found here in Gibraltar in Forbes Quarry, although at the time they didn't realise its significance. Since then, further key discoveries have been made, and each summer, volunteer archaeologists travel to Gibraltar to painstakingly search through the sediment in the Gorham's Cave complex looking for more clues to our Neanderthal ancestors. The World Heritage Site is described by UNESCO as having outstanding universal value, and stretches from the seashore on the eastern side of the rock where Gorham's Cave Complex is located, right up to the summit of Gibraltar, hundreds of metres above in the Upper Rock Nature Reserve, which is where I am right now. Dr Geraldine Finlayson from the Gibraltar National Museum has been coordinating and working on the archaeological digs here for many years. I caught up with her at the museum and asked her about the significance of the discovery of that first Neanderthal skull known as Gibraltar 1 all those years ago. To start with the story of Gibraltar 1, you really have to go back to the middle of the 19th century. That's when the Victorians were around. A time before Darwin, when people still thought that the only people who'd ever existed were people exactly like us. And... um, they found, somebody found, we don't know who exactly found the skull, but they found a skull uh, and they presented it to Lieutenant Flint, who was the secretary of the Gibraltar Scientific Society at the time. And this skull had been found somewhere in the vicinity of Forbes Quarry. Now, 
It all sounds as if we know exactly where we mean, because we know a place that today is called Forbes Quarry, but of course there's no precise location for where the skull was found. But there have been a lot of ambiguities and people have assumed that, you know, the skull was then put away in a box and forgotten about. It wasn't quite like that. And in fact, um, Dr. Alex, Alex Menes has just published a book where he gives the history of the Gibraltar one. It's a really interesting read. But, to, you know, just to summarize, they, the people who saw this skull, they weren't anatomists uh, who were specializing in, you know, human skulls or anything like that. But they were men of science and they knew enough about it to know that it was different from the normal skull. So they commented about its difference. Um, and then for a variety of reasons that I won't go into, it was only after a skull or a set of um, bones were found in the Neander Valley in Germany in 1856, that's eight years after our skull had been found, um, that people then called that, that those remains the Neanderthal uh, uh, remains. And that's why when we realized or people realized that our skull was of the same type, we now refer to it as a Neanderthal skull. Now, people say well, it should have been Gibraltar skull or Gibraltar man or Gibraltar woman. Sure, but that's not the way it works. And um, because it hadn't been described officially and scientifically, that's why it took the name of Neanderthals. Now, why is this skull significant? Well, the Gibraltar one was the first almost complete skull. There were other um, bones that have subsequently been identified as being Neanderthal that were found in Belgium before us, but they were just fragments um, and they weren't recognized as being Neanderthal as, uh, until the middle of the 20th century. Uh, but this skull, Darwin held it in his hands and he, he talked about the, the magnificent Gibraltar skull. And so it was almost complete. So it was almost giving people an idea of what these people were like and the, how different they were from us. As I said before, this is at a time where people just thought that the only people who'd ever lived on the earth were people like us. And so then talk happened about whether these were half man, half monkey. And then you get people who try to draw what they thought they may have looked like. And they even had, you know, it was a joke. But the, the person who who did the first sketch put a little tail on the on this man, uh, the Neanderthal man with a little tail. And it was a joke because but there was the beginning of the talk of a missing link. Um, but it was significant because this is what it happened at a time where the whole concept of evolution was coming to the fore. And so just from that point of view, Gibraltar one is incredibly important, even today. And of course, when this particular person, the Neanderthal person, was walking and living and breathing here in Gibraltar. Gibraltar was nothing like it is today. No, that's right. Um, we haven't had a direct dating on the skull, but um, we can infer through a variety of means that it was about maybe 80,000 years ago that this individual was alive. We now know it to have been a woman. Uh, for a long time, it was thought that it was a, a female skull because the brow ridges, which are um, indicative of the Neanderthals, everyone talk, talks about the fact that Neanderthals had very prominent brow ridges, practically no forehead and no chin. And that's just generalizing. But this skull has very um, has a little bit of a, a brow ridges, but very little. Um, so we sort of thought it was a female, but now DNA has shown that, yes, it, is, it was a female. Um, but when she was alive, 
Um, she was living in a world where it was in the middle of the ice ages. And so all the water that was trapped in these ice sheets in the north of Europe and the north of America was drawn from the sea. So it means that the level of the sea was much lower than it is today. And for Gibraltar, this meant that although we still had the Bay of Gibraltar, because it's a very deep bay, on the back of Gibraltar, what is now Eastern Beach, Catalan Bay, Sandy Bay, that was, wasn't was a beach, and it was facing a huge sandy plain. And today, if you go to one of these beaches and you look out and you see where the tankers are anchored, the plain would have gone just beyond that point. So you'll see it's quite a distance. And it's on that vast sandy plain that you had animals like the red deer and horses, the ancestors of cattle that are called aurochs, um, even a, a type of extinct rhinoceros. Um, these were all inhabiting that sandy dune, which was covered in vegetation, which had little lakes of fresh water. Lots of birds that came on migration as they do today, but also came to live in these bodies of fresh water. And so it was a, almost like a little paradise for these Neanderthals to live in. And that is probably one of the main reasons why we get the latest dates for Neanderthals anywhere in the world have been found here in Gibraltar, because we were so far south that although it was really cold in the north of Europe, in the far south of Europe, it was actually quite mild, relatively speaking. And so they were able to hang on for much longer than they were able to in other parts of Europe. So the Gibraltar Neanderthals could quite possibly have been the, the last ones in existence. As far as evidence shows today, as far as we know, there is no other place anywhere where there's evidence of Neanderthals that's any younger than the ones in Gibraltar. That's not to say that tomorrow somewhere in Italy or in Croatia they're going to find something, but as things stand today, the most recent Neanderthals were the ones that lived here um, 32,000 years ago, and we find their campfires, we find them in Gorham's Cave, and you find the charcoal in their campfires, and that's what we can directly date using carbon-14 to find what the dates are, and that's what's giving us these dates. Of course, you, you mentioned the fact that you're still finding things. You still have people in the summer come and do excavations and, and look for things, don't you? You know, the story's not finished. Absolutely not. I don't really, honestly, and I'm not exaggerating at all for effect, I don't think the story will be finished for another 800 years at least, and I'm not exaggerating. There's a lot of information in Gorham's Cave in particular and Vanguard Cave, but in the other caves in Gibraltar, as well as in other parts of the world, but we're concentrating on, on Jib. Um, people come, we, we organise excavations every year, and we do them in the summer so that students from universities can uh, come during their summer break and uh, help with the excavations. Um, and we've been doing this now for 25 years, and I don't see us not doing it for, you know, it's something that's, we're getting so much information. I mean, only last year we found the tooth of a Neanderthal child, a, a milk tooth. So there's so much just waiting. I always say that the caves are very generous, uh, but they don't give us everything all at once. They just drip feed us the information. They're making you work for it. Yes, but but in a nice way, because they, they always give us a little bit to keep us going and keep our energies renewed, because it is hard work and it, it, it can be a little bit soul-destroying, because, you know, everyone... When you excavate, you, you imagine the actual process of being on your knees and, you know, brushing away the sand and revealing a, a beautiful piece of bone. But most of the time, you know, you're sitting in a really awkward position, your feet have gone to sleep, 
it's you're aching, you're cold, um, you can't move around because you don't want to disturb the sediments around you. Uh, and you're not finding anything or what you're finding are tiny little bones that you can't really identify. You need to go to the lab to get to see what they are. Um, so, you know, it, it is long and it's hard work and it's 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 can be soul destroying. But then you get something like a Neanderthal tooth and then you, that keeps you going for another 10 years Pretty just like, on that. Like hitting the jackpot. <laughs> well, a little bit, yes. And and it's a little bit like that, like gambling, because, you know, you're working and you always think, well, the next stroke is going to reveal the Neanderthal skull that's waiting there. And I'm sure there's one waiting for us. Well, you, you, you mentioned uh, Gibraltar 1. There was a, a child skull that was found as well, wasn't there? That's right. Um, Neanderthal, the first Gibraltar skull, Gibraltar 1, who we now call Nana, um, she was found in Forbes Quarry in 1848. But in 1926, Dorothy Garrod found a skull. She was digging in uh, the Devil's Tower cave shelter. And um, she's a very interesting person, personality. I mean, she's very highly respected around the world as one of the pioneering archaeologists. And she did a lot of work in Mount Carmel, which is also a World Heritage Site today. Um, but this was when she was beginning, right at the very beginning of her career. And she was working here and she found the remains of a child. Now, this skull was in many pieces, not like Gibraltar 1. Gibraltar 2 is in many pieces. Um, and it was studied for a long time, and for a while in the 1960s, they even considered that maybe they were looking at two individuals, uh, because there were some features that suggested that it was a child of about four years of age, Mm -hmm. but other features that suggested it was a child of about eight years of age. And so for a while, the conversation, if you like, uh, was, was it one or was it two individuals? Now we know it was one individual, but the reason for these discrepancies, if you compare them with a modern child, is that Neanderthals developed at different rates from us. So it's it's a little bit touching. I mean, you can see a replica in the museum uh, today, and you, I always find it a little bit sad that you can see the adult's teeth in the upper mandible are unerupted. They haven't pushed through yet. I think that's a little bit sad that, you know, we, we get carried away and we're talking about the Neanderthal child skull and all that, but... This it is a child, a child yeah. who died, you know, um, before his or her time. Well, we now we know it's a, chi- it's a boy. So we, when we took the decision to have the forensic recreation of the two skulls that you can now see in the museum, um, we went out on a limb a little bit. As I said earlier, we thought that the Gibraltar one was a female, but there was no direct evidence. And we decided that since we had a female, the, bo- the child would be a boy. Uh, but it was really just chance. Of course, you've got a 50% chance of being right, and we were. So we now know that uh, the boy um, was about four years of age. Um, now, in the portrayal, the forensic reconstruction, we've got Nana, who is the Gibraltar one, the adults, and Flint, who we've named the boy Flint. They're sort of together in the pose as if the grandmother is sort of taking not taking care of the child the child looks capable of taking care of himself but he's a little bit shy and he's sort of hanging on to her um and the the pose was thought through quite a lot we wanted to give as much information about neanderthals as possible in a pose which is quite Mm. difficult to do um but we decided to put them together as a grandmother and a child yes as a unit as a unit Mm. of course it's in all probability um, they probably never met and they're probably not related at all. 
Um, but you know, you have to. That's about the only artistic license that we use really for those reconstructions. Uh, we wanted to give them a face. We wanted to show them as people, uh, and I'm using that word intentionally, uh, not animals without conscience, and you know, but people. And Nana is looking at you in the eye, and she's got a twinkle in her eye and a smile on her face, as if she's sharing an, a thought with you and having a smile with you about it. You know, and um, the artists who did the reconstruction were very careful to make sure that the image that you see is the face of that Neanderthal. Of course, the expression is their interpretation. Uh, but I think they did a very good uh, job of that. They're very striking. When you walk around the corner, when you first come into the museum, you, you really genuinely feel like, you know, they're watching you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fantastic recon reconstruction. Well, we wanted to do that. In fact, that's why you have to walk around a corner before you're faced with them. But we wanted people to, to understand that the Neanderthals from, well, as I said earlier, had we, people were trying to show them as the missing link, that they were the half animal, half human. Um, but as you work with them and you see their campsites and you see their tools and their technology and how they, they can catch animals such as birds, which for a long time they thought they, people thought they were incapable of doing, um, they were intelligent people. These people could communicate with each other because you can't just learn by chance or you can't have instinct tell you how to make a stone tool in a particular way. And you can actually detect on the stone tools the hand of the person, you know, that one person might have one style, another person has a different style. You can actually detect that. Goodness. This shows you these people were, were intelligent. I mean, they were on the planet longer than we've been on the planet. So, you know, they knew what they were doing and they knew where to go for food and what to do at what time of the year. So we wanted to show that in our reconstruction. We didn't want them to look as if they were mm, people who just existed and were just lucky that food came along and they were able to bash it over the head and kill it. These were people who could plan ahead and know that at certain times of the year they would go up to what we today call Ibex Cave, which is at the top of the water catchments above the Caleta Hotel. Oh, yes. There's a cave there where we found an Ibex, and there's evidence of the Neanderthals having caught that Ibex. And so they would have known the right time of year to go up there, the right time of year to go down to the, the caves that were closer to sea level, and they would have been able to exploit the marine life nearby. Because although there's a big shelf going out towards the east, if, if you come out of Gorham's Cave and head south towards Africa, you come to the, to the beach very quickly. It's, it would have been very close to where today we have the lighthouse. Underwater, there's a, a cliff uh, it goes down very, very deep, very quickly. And so that, obviously, that hasn't changed. So the beach would have been close by in that direction. So they would have known when it would be, have been a good idea to go and pick the marine uh, resources, when it would have been a good idea to try and hunt a horse, and when it would have been a good idea to hunt some rabbits instead because they were closer by and lots of them. So they were very sophisticated then. Incredibly so, which brings me to the ultimate thing about the Gibraltar caves. And that, of course, is the first place anywhere in the world where we've been able to demonstrate that Neanderthals were capable of having a thought and expressing it in some way has been where we found the engraving in Gorham's cave. And that was the most incredible time for us. We found that engraving about a year before we 
contacted anybody else other than the team that was working on it because we were our first critics if you like we had to convince ourselves first that this was neanderthal because i mean when nobody has thought that neanderthals are capable of this to go out and say it without enough evidence um you know they just dismiss you as being a crank so we really need to needed to make sure that we had solid evidence so the first thing that we did when we found these marks was convince ourselves what they were and we started off by getting our geologists to take a, a very small sample of the patina that was over these engravings and try and see if he could make sense of it so that took a few months but they were able to show that the chemical reactions taking place to form that um little sort of um crust if you like over the engraving takes a long time and so that gave them an indication of the age of the engraving and when you when they worked it out it was like christmas all of a sudden because it was at least 40,000 years old goodness so what does that mean why did we get so excited about 40,000 years well you may remember i just said that the latest or the latest or youngest dates for neanderthals in gibraltar was 32,000 years ago So this is 8000 years before, before the last ones. Mm. And that's the youngest it could be. This engraving could be much older than that. So we realized that we were onto something for at last there was proof that it could only be Neanderthals because in Europe there were no modern humans 40,000 or at least in this part of Europe there were in in the east of um in the near in what we now call Israel, Lebanon, that sort of area. But in this part of Europe there were no Neanderthals and so we were really really excited because at last we had proof and also we had proof because our Neanderthals never met with modern humans in Gibraltar. There's about 10,000 years between the last Neanderthals at about 32,000 years ago and the first modern humans is about 20, 22,000 years ago. So they never met here. So it could only have been a Neanderthal engraving. And so that was for us incredible because we we stopped short. I remember when we went out publicly after it had been published in the uh peer reviewed journals. Um peer review just means that the scientists come and they pick it to bits before they'll allow you to go public. Um and when we went public we were we stopped just short of saying it was art. Um the reason that we didn't want to say it was art was because that's that's a huge step. And so all we wanted to say was these were people who were capable of having an idea and expressing it in some form whether it was art or whether they were trying to do a map of the cave or um, make their own personal mark we'll never really know somebody once asked Clive if it might have been that they were trying to replicate the the lines on your hand oh it does look and it does look it like does that look quite i think that's the closest i've ever felt it was yeah, but we'll never know somebody suggested it might have been a constellation we even had somebody writing in saying well maybe it was a a complex way of doing mathematics uh, <laughs> which was really strange and i you know i'm not a mathematician so maybe a mathematician might see that i didn't see it but um, we'll never know that's the fact you can never get into somebody's mind uh, but it was very exciting yeah and that did, is that what then led to you applying for the world heritage status or is is that something that had been on the cards Actually, anyway. Yeah, we had already we started going because you know, um it, this was like the icing on the cake, but we'd already started the process for world heritage sa- status when this came came along. 
and we hadn't actually submitted yet, so was able to go into the submission. But we'd actually started the process beforehand because the caves, in their own right, are very important. And there's 17 meters of sediments in one of them and 18 meters in the other. So we're going to be excavating there, you know, for another thousand years. Good heavens. I'm not exaggerating because if if you work out the rate at which we excavate today um, and then you you work out how much volume we excavate in one year, that's how long it's going to take to, to empty it. Not that we'd want to. Because, of course, part of the value of these caves is the fact that they've got these sediments. And as time passes, new technologies arise. And so you can find out things that you couldn't before. Even 10 years ago, we wouldn't have thought of trying to look for DNA. And that's what we're going to be doing now. So, you know, um, these are who knows what in 50 years' time will be possible. I won't, may not be around probably won't be around to know but you know hey that's for the next for the future and there's lots of exciting stuff there to be seen still i'm sure of course now people can get a bit closer to gorham's cave because you've got your viewing platform and and visitor center so uh, you know do people come from all over the world to see they certainly do there's a huge amount of interest um we have a quota of people who can um it's only 120 in a year who can go down to visit the caves. But, you know, um, you have to be really fit because uh, there's 350 steps going down and, more importantly, coming back up again. It's hard work and then it's a scramble over boulders. So not, not everyone feels that they want to go down to the caves. But um, going on to the viewing platform, which overlooks the caves, gives you the opportunity to see the caves and then ha- we have somebody on site who gives you an explanation and then doesn't just talk about the caves as we've been talking about but talks about the tectonic uplift that raises the rock of Gibraltar out of the sea much much uh, earlier than the Neanderthals were around about three maybe five million years ago but um, gives you the whole history of how or, or, or what the geology was like and what it is that makes Gibraltar such a good place for caves in the first place and then talks about the Neanderthals who then came and took over. Because, of course, we have to remember that the World Heritage Site isn't just the caves at sea level. The World Heritage Site includes all the rock, all the way up to O'Hara's, and it includes Med Steps. And the thing about Med Steps, people ask me, well, why have you included that? It's not... Well, Med Steps is almost unique in the sense, on Gibraltar, not in the world, but it's unique in Gibraltar because it has a lot of the vegetation and a lot of the bird species that was around at the time of the Neanderthals. So you can be, it sort of supports, if you like, the story that's being told in the World Heritage Site. So when you next walk along Med Steps, um, if you're running up Med Steps, you might not be able to do so. But if you're walking up Med Steps and you sit down and just stop and listen, the first thing that would strike you about Med Steps is there's no noise of the town. So there's the silence first. And then into that silence sounds start intruding and the first sounds you'll hear possibly might be a ship in the distance or something but then the other sounds that you'll hear are all going to be natural ones and you may hear the blue rock thrush or you might hear a sardinian warbler in a, in a bush nearby you'll hear the rustle of the wind through the vegetation you'll smell the olives you'll smell the vegetation and these are the sounds and the s- smells that the neanderthals would have been experiencing themselves and that they would have been exploiting because they would have known which vegetation was safe to eat, what they could make from, you know, maybe the grasses. Um, they would have known how to exploit that world that they lived in. And it's like a little window into the world of the Neanderthals. 
and it's up on the med steps in the Upper Rock Nature Reserve listening to those sounds where you find me right now. Sitting here at the opening of one of the goat's hair twin caves, looking out at the Mediterranean Sea, seagulls wheeling overhead, and you can let your imagination drift back to the time of the Neanderthals, the very first Gibraltarians. I have to say a huge thank you to Geraldine Finlayson for taking the time to speak to me about Gibraltar's Neanderthal heritage. And if you'd like to find out more about the Gorham's Cave Complex and Gibraltar National Museum, I've included links to the relevant websites in the show notes for this episode. Thanks to you too for listening. Since launching the podcast preview just a week ago, there's been such a lot of support for it both locally and from overseas. Don't forget to follow Gibraltar Stories on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. That way you won't miss out on any new episodes. You can listen to the Gibraltar Stories podcast on our website, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and you can also subscribe on iTunes as well. I'll be back next week with another Gibraltar story for you and until then, bye for now and thanks for listening.